I'm, my heart is full. I, I am just so overjoyed that we were able to celebrate the Lord's table together and that we can celebrate what God has done for us out of his deep, unending, undeserved grace that he pours into our lives. I don't know how many of you were paying attention to the question on the screen during our pause, but do you know of a time where God has shown unexpected grace to you in your life? When you realized God is being so good to me right now and there is no way that I deserve this. This, I am so far from a place where God should be giving me blessing. And he's just poured out his grace on you. Whether that was in the moment when you realized that God loves you, truly loves you unconditionally, no matter who you are, and that you walked into that offer of new life and grace? Or is it a moment when you realize just how badly you had failed? As a parent, I've had many of those moments. As a pastor, I've had way too many of those moments. As a person before God, in the frailty of my own humanity, I have had so many of those moments. Where I've been on my knees because God has poured his grace into my life and I know just how far I am from deserving that expression of love. Those good gifts from God because I have done nothing to earn them. Where have you seen these unexpected mercies, God's grace poured into your life? We are walking through the Gospel of John and considering the questions that he asks of people that he encounters and then listening to those questions as Jesus asks them of us in our own personal lives and for us as a church. This morning's question is, will you give me a drink? The text that we read this morning is from John chapter 4 the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. How many of you have heard more than a dozen or two of these sermons on John chapter 4? This is one of our go-to texts. We love this story. It highlights for us an essential part of Jesus' ministry as he reaches out beyond the bounds of social convention, as he tears down barriers to enter into the life of others. But there is always more. There is always more. And this week, as I was walking through the text and considering what it was that God was drawing out for us and for me, in this question, will you give me a drink? Again, God gave new light. 
His Spirit illuminated things that I have never seen. I have preached this passage at least a dozen times in my ministry. And this week again, God showed things to me that were brand new and touched my heart again in a way that reminds me of His grace and a little bit more what God is doing with us. Let's look at the two verses here at the beginning of the text, John 4, verse 7 and verse 9, that give shape to this question. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And she said to him, You were a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And she says, how can you even ask that question? How can you even ask that? The reason this question and her response are so, so significant is because there is so much that is strange in this story. If you read this story through the eyes of those who lived in that day, in that time, a Jewish perspective, a person of that era, you would understand things immediately that are wrong with this story. There are things here that do not belong. There are things that are just so strange that immediately your antenna would be up. What is going on this is signaling something to us. The writer of the gospel, John, is signaling something to the readers here. Something that God is up to. Something about Jesus is doing that changes the way we understand the relationship of God's people to Jesus the Messiah. So here's some of those strange details. First of all, we read in the story that the woman is coming to the well around noon. Noon is not when you go to the well for water. You d that, it doesn't make sense. Has anyone traveled recently to somewhere south? At noon, do you go outside? No. Why? The sun is beating down. It is unmercilessly, yeah, unmercilessly, that's the right word, right? It is hot. Like, if you have to go anywhere, you, like, you dodge from one piece of shade to the next because it's so it's burning. And here you have this woman coming in the dress that she would have been wearing at that time, which is probably considerably more than you would be wearing when you go down to Mexico during the, warm sun, the warmth of winter there, right? It is hot. What is she doing coming to the well at noon? It's a problem. Secondly, something that's strange is that she's coming to the well alone. Getting water is a difficult task when you have to draw it from a well that's about 100 feet deep. It's something that you want help with. She is coming alone. Another strange detail in the story. Jesus and his disciples, it says they're traveling from where they were up to Galilee, back to the region where they're from. And they've stopped here at this town. And it says all of the disciples went into the town and Jesus stayed out by the well. 
why is Jesus alone? We know that he had a whole group that traveled with him, not just the 12 disciples. There's a large group. And it says every single one of them went into the town. Why is Jesus alone here? Another strange detail. Jesus, who is a man, initiates a conversation with this Samaritan woman. He's the one that speaks to her first. That is a no-no. You just don't do that. It is so inappropriate. It is, frankly, by today's standards, it would be called something creepy. This is something that's just creepy. It's like, ew, what is wrong with, why would you, you don't, a man does not talk to a woman in public that he is not related to or married to. You just don't do it. Another strange detail. Not only is Jesus a man, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Not just Jewish, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Jews, the Jews and the Samaritans and their relationship, but he's a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, someone who's looked up to, someone who's an example. He is demonstrating to his disciples, his students, what it looks like to be a faithful Jew, a faithful follower of God, and so here's someone who is an example and a model who is doing something that is so out of bounds. This story is filled with strange details that make us, the listener, go, what is going on here? This doesn't make sense. This would never happen. This story has to be made up. This would never happen. Because if it did happen, people would have been really upset. Things would not have gone well. This story doesn't belong here. What's the significance of all of these things? That Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, is talking with a Samaritan woman. All the disciples are gone. He comes to her and he says, Will you give me a drink? And she says, how, how can you even ask me that question? How can you ask me for a drink? One of the things that we are learning as we walk through the Gospel of John is that in the stories, the people that are in the stories are not only the people in and of themselves and in their personal encounter with Jesus, but they also are symbols pointing to a greater understanding, a greater truth, something that is bigger than the person themselves. And the same thing is true here in the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. One of the reasons that we are so surprised that Jesus would be talking to her is that, well, we've heard this before. She's a woman and she's a Samaritan, which are both really not good things in the Jewish mindset of that day. Why is that? Well, as we go through the story, we learn a few details about this Samaritan woman. We find out just how bad things actually are. This woman is morally compromised. She is completely and utterly morally compromised, and we find that in a couple of the details of the story. This is why she's coming to the well at noon. 
This is why she's coming to the well alone. Because even her own people, even the Samaritans that she lives with and is a part of, want nothing to do with her. She can't go to the well in the morning or the evening when everybody else goes because she is a pariah in her community. She's an outcast. She can't go to the well with others because no one wants to help her. She's an outsider in her own community. I think if we pause for a moment, it wouldn't take us too long to think of comparable examples in our own community. Those that no one wants to be around. Those that no one wants to walk with and to help. Those who are completely and utterly compromised. Someone that you shouldn't spend time with according to our society. This woman, we learn, has had five husbands. Five husbands. Now, that's a stretch in any culture. And in a culture such as that day in that time, it's a sign of complete, utter moral failure, either on her part or the men that she chose. It's a stigma But not only has she had five husbands, she also now is living with another man. With someone who is not her husband. What do you think it takes for someone to be in so desperate a situation that in that time, in that society, in that place, she would enter into that kind of a relationship where she does not even have the security of being part of a household formally? Likely, it's an exploitive kind of relationship. But remember I said in these stories, it's not just the person themselves. There's something symbolic going on that John is pointing to. And this is where I had that aha this week that I've never seen in this story before. So we've all heard, or most of us who have heard this story, or the the story of the Good Samaritan, we've heard this idea that the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along, right? They, They clash. They don't like each other. In fact, they hate one another. And there's some very good reasons historically for that, some of which we would might agree with and some which we might have questions about today. But you see, just as the woman is morally compromised... The Samaritans as a people are considered to be spiritually compromised. And there's a number of reasons for this. One of those is that those who are known as the Samaritans were those who are left, the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel, which as you read through the history of the people of Israel and Judah, these are the ones who were so unfaithful that the Assyrians came and scattered them and killed them. And then what the Assyrians did is that they brought in people from other nations and brought them to live in the land where these Israelites, the northern Israelites, had been. And they lived among them. And the people who were left there began to intermarry with them and to be part of these other nations. And so they are compromised in terms of their ethnic identity. They are no longer Jewish Jews. 
They are now something else and something which the scriptures have talked about. You shouldn't mix with the people around you. You are, you are a distinct people. They are compromised. And this is really interesting. Write in your notes or write down somewhere 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17 verses 24 to 33. In 2 Kings, it talks about this uh, movement of peoples. Really interesting fact that shows up is that when the Assyrians brought in other nations to live there, how many nations did they bring? They brought people from five different nations and their gods that lived among the people of northern Israel. Five husbands, five nations. The husband and wife relationship in that time and in that place in a patriarchal society means that you serve that household. And the people of northern Israel that became known as the Samaritans have been serving these five gods that are not their god. They are utterly compromised. And then remember it says that, they're living with another, that she has been living with another man? One of the things that has happened in the not-too-distant past in this area of Samaria is that the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, those that would describe themselves as the faithful ones, the ones that came back from the exile in Babylon and had turned their hearts back to God and they were rebuilding the temple and they're doing About 200 years before Christ... The people of Judah are oppressed by, uh, by the rulers who are coming from the Greek area and that they are trying to bring Greek ideas in. And the people of Judah finally get so fed up about, with this oppression and all of this stuff that's going on and they rise up in a revolt. It's called the Maccabean Rebellion. Some of you may have heard of it, others haven't. But that rebellion is not successful at getting rid of the oppressors and in fact is suppressed. And what happens at that time is that the Samaritans, who are still known as part of the Jewish people, they go, whoa, 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 that wasn't us. That's not us. No, 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 that's the Judeans. No, no, we we are loyal subjects. And in fact, one of the things that happened at that time is that the temple that the Samaritans worshipped at, which was at a different place than where the Israelites worshipped at, in that temple, they actually set up a dedication to the god Zeus, one of the Greek gods. In all of these things, oh, by the way, the name of the ruler of that time was Antiochus IV when that rebellion happened. Now, I don't know how you would feel if someone who you're connected to, someone who's supposed to be part of your people in a time of crisis, in a time when things are really dangerous, they go, well, I got nothing to do with this. You're on your own here. You already have all of this tension and separation between these these people who have been intermarried and serving other gods and they've been doing a syncretism of their gods and Yahweh and it's all messed up. You already got questions and then they betray you in that way. No wonder the Jewish people of Judea, the southern kingdom, 
couldn't stand the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. They are completely and utterly compromised, morally, spiritually, in every sense that you can imagine. And Jesus comes to a Samaritan town and says to the woman, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? As we read in John 4, verse 7, and in verse 9, she responds, How can you ask me for a drink? There is this gulf of separation between us. There is this this burden, this barrier, this obstacle, whatever you want to call it, there is no way that you should be able to ask me for a drink. Jesus answers in verse 10 and 11, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He is speaking here of a spiritual understanding. A fulfillment for the longings that she has. The living water, the eternal life through the Messiah for all of the people of Israel. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and by extension into the rest of the world. And she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Jesus is giving her a spiritual answer, but she's stuck in the physical. She's stuck in what she sees and knows right in front of her. She says, you don't have a jar, and the well is 100 feet deep. How are you going to get me water, this living water that comes from a spring of some sort? Where can you get this living water? She goes on to question whether he is actually greater than Jacob, the, one of the ancestors of the Jews who dug this well and provided this water in the first place. Little does she know that the answer is, yes, he is greater, greater by far, greater in all ways. This is where we turn our attention from the story to our own lives. And we recognize that Jesus comes to us where we are in the context we find ourselves and that the reality is that our context, just like the Samaritan woman, is that we are separated from God. There is no reason why he should be able to say, will you give me a drink? We have no place there in that kind of relationship, whether to serve God or to be in relationship, even that minimal entry into relationship that Jesus is offering. And so often, just like the woman at the well, we ask the same question, how can you ask this? How can you ask me to serve you? Because we are too compromised. 
We are too unfaithful. We are too corrupted. We are too outside, too far outside the grace of God. And just like the woman at the well, we say, you have no jar. You have no way to get down to this source of living water. How can you get this living water for me? The truth that John is pointing to in this gospel is that God can. God's grace is sufficient. God's love means that he goes through those barriers. He tears down those obstacles and he comes to us and offers us that living water of relationship with him. Do you ask that question, what can God do with me? How could God actually even want to use me? God has work for you to do. God invites you through Jesus Christ to serve him, to serve his kingdom, and to be in partnership and relationship with him. He longs to give you a drink from this living water. The implications for us in our own lives is that we who have received this grace and are ambassadors of Christ to those around us is that we too must have this mindset of who will we invite? Who can we extend this invitation to relationship to? The implication is that there is no one outside the bounds of God's grace. There is no one to whom we cannot extend this hope and this living water of Jesus Christ. It implies for each one of us that in Jesus, we are invited into a new life, a new purpose, a new way of understanding. And as Jesus says to the woman, if you would drink this water, you would never be thirsty again we begin to understand that as we receive and enter into this relationship with Christ, we can lay down the pursuit of that longing within us. We can lay down that thirst for something that will satisfy our souls because that which satisfies us completely is offered to us freely in grace and in love. Will you give me a drink? Is the question Jesus asks of us. May we drink deeply of the living waters together. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.